those children who'd like to be dismissed for children's church may do so now at this time. If you ever like to keep your kids in worship, we uh, here at Hope think that worship is the best place to learn to worship. And, and so if your kids like to be in the worship service, they may. Uh, if they'd much rather not, um, we, we, have, we have children's church. <laughs> He's already heard the sermon, so he knows. Um, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles or your devices, whatever you're using, to Judges chapter 14 as we uh, continue uh, our, our walk through this uh, fascinating book and certainly uh, lively uh, uh, book as well. Uh, we're, 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 this is our second message uh, with uh, Samson. It's page 271 if you're using the Blue Church Bibles. Samson, if he lived today, would probably be a uh, supermarket tabloid cover boy. Uh, he, is a, he is a prankster. He is an adulterer. He is a murderer. He is an arsonist. He tortures animals. He lies and he jokes about it. He dishonors his parents. He tries to sleep with a prostitute. In fact, as Samson stomps uh, through this passage in Judges 14, he has all the traits that you would expect of a man who has a massive pornography problem and then posts about it proudly on Instagram. He is a hashtag MeToo disaster. Uh, Samson today, if he was walking around, would probably have to come with his own warning label that says toxic masculinity. He is ruled by his appetites. And yet, here he is, right between Gideon and David in Hebrews 11, the so-called Hall of Faith. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we look at the Samson narrative, how does he get from here a man ruled by his personal appetites to there, a deliverer uh, who lives by faith in Hebrews 11, because that is a very long way. And uh, we have to ask, how do we get from here, swamped as we are in a culture that feeds our appetites, we too, as we heard read our, our Lord and pulled away by our own desires to, to there, to be with the family of faith in, in Hebrews 11 ourselves. We have to sort of figure that out because for many of us, that's a very long way. So let's see what the Lord's word says to us. Judges 14, hear now the reading of God's word. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. 
And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. You can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast. Find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and I should tell you. She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, um, we can read this and wonder, how is this the word of the Lord? Well, Lord, open our eyes. Um, give us your spirit that we might see you, that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> A friend of mine uh, preached on this passage and, 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 and wrote before he forgot, like the main application here is, men never refer to your wife as a heifer. Right? So just to make sure we get that out there. All the other stuff Samson does, you, you know, many people get away with in our culture. That's one you cannot do in any culture. Now, this morning we're going to look uh, at uh, the power that we see and weakness that we see uh, right together in this passage and start to ask, well, wh who is this guy? and What is he doing in the Bible? And how is God using him? And how is God even in the passage? Uh, this morning we're going to look at the power of God's purposes because see in the passage there's, there's a place there where it's revealed to us that God does have a purpose. 
Number two, the weakness of God's servant. There's something sort of ironic and interesting about Samson, the strong man, and how he's being used. The weakness of God's servant. And then finally, the secret of God's grace. There is honey in the passage as well. So the power of God's purpose, the weakness of God's servant, and the secret of God's grace. So let's look first at the power of God's purposes. Samson is a man of his time. He's truly a man of his time. Yes, his life reads like an Old Testament Jeffrey Epstein, but in fact, his life and his behavior is part of a bigger story. Remember, remember that when this book of Judges began, we had two significant problems. Two significant problems. One, the Israelites are now in the promised land. But the promises cannot be fulfilled because the previous pagan idolaters still inhabit the land. Remember, Judges and the story of Judges is even part of a, a bigger story. It's a part of a story that begins back in Genesis, where in, you could say that Adam and Eve were living in a promised land that was given to them. And uh, you could even say that there was a covenant then, that God said you can have all of these uh, trees and the fruit and the garden, and I'll walk with you, I'll be with you. They walk through the cool of the day in the garden together, uh, except don't do this, don't eat from this one tree. And ever since then, of course, uh, Adam and Eve were, in a sense, graciously pushed out of the garden. Remember, the wages of sin is death. The Bible should have ended at that moment. But God graciously provides a, a, a ram, and uh, that ram, in, in a sense, atones for their sin. But we're now looking for someone to actually and fully do it. And so here we have the people of God, and God is going to cover his side, if you will, of the covenant. He's going to live with his people. He's promised to always dwell with his people. And so he puts them in a promised land where he's going to get rid of every other god. Every other idol needs to be pushed out. And of course, through the sacrificial system of the, of the temple or the, the tabernacle, you see, God has found a way to live with his people even as the, the story continues. But the people go into the land and they don't push out the foreign gods. That's where we are. And the reason for this is because Israel liked the Canaanite gods. They liked them. They liked their idols. The, the, the gods of the people groups like the Philistines remained attractive to Israel. And so in Judges chapter 2, God says he will allow these foreign gods to be a thorn in the side of Israel, a snare to the people. And Israel weeps. But there's a second problem. There's a second problem in Judges. The larger problem was that after the whole generation of Joshua had died, the first generation that went into the land, another generation grew up that knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Think about that. After one generation, just one generation, no longer do the people know God or know what God had done for the people of God. What a tragedy. Just in, in, in one generation, from parent to child, the knowledge of the Lord and what he'd done, the Passover, the Exodus, uh, God's commands, God's covenant promises to make their people as the sand on the seashore to deliver them into this promised land, that that's what this land is for. All of that lost. All of it gone in one generation. 
Now, how is that possible? Somehow, the Israelites did not, as the old song goes, teach their children well. They did not catechize them. They did not teach them. They did not tell them the stories of what God had done in their lives. Somehow that next generation was affected more and more by the surrounding leftover culture to the point where the prevailing ethics of God's people were exactly like the pagans that were around them. And into that crisis stomps Samson. Now, if there's one thing, remember we had that nativity story of Samson last week, if there's one thing we know about Samson at this point, aside from his strength, it's that he is to be separate, consecrated, and holy to the Lord. He's a Nazarite. He's a Nazarite. So the one thing we've got to remember that is Samson's purpose is he's supposed to be consecrated, separate, and holy to the Lord from the very beginning. Even, Even his strength is subordinate to that purpose. If you remember the calling upon Samson last week, in chapter 13, his strength wasn't even mentioned. In that whole chapter, we never heard about the strength at all. We heard about his Nazarite vow. It meant that he had this calling and that he had one job, job one for this man to be separate, consecrated, and holy to the Lord. And yet, when we finally meet Samson here in chapter 14, He is in constant motion. Did you notice? He's on the move right away. And he's going, I don't know if you noticed, in the wrong direction. Uh, This is one of those those places where all you have to do to understand what the chapter's about is just circle the verbs. And um, in this case, we keep reading over and over again that Samson goes down. And Samson goes down. And Samson goes down again, and he's going to a place he ought not go. He's going to Timnah. What is Timnah? It's a city of the Philistines. And he keeps going down. Verse 1, Samson went down. Verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah. Verse 7, then he went down to talk to the woman. And verse 18, excuse me, verse 8 implies it, because it says sometime later he went back down to marry her. So down and down and down he goes. But not only that, with every step, Samson is breaking, the very first time we meet him, nearly every vow he has as a Nazarite. In in about a paragraph, he does this. Every Nazarite vow is broken, and then some other laws as well. In fact, in verse 10, we see that because of Samson, his father goes down to Timnah to see the Philistine woman as well. We think of generational depravity always going downward. Samson's so good at this sin thing that the the generational depravity, he sucks in his parents as well. Now, I want to apply this to those of you who are parents in the room and anyone here in this room who does some sort of discipleship. You're a student here. You're one of the college students here. Uh, Really, everybody in this room um, once you're in, in, in a sense above maybe 15 years old, everybody should be involved in some kind of discipleship with somebody else. This applies to all of us, in other, in other words. How does this happen? How does this happen to the strongest man in Israel? How does this depravity, this downward motion, for someone who's, again, he's supposed to be a Nazarite, he's supposed to be set apart, 
by God for something good to do, to, to, to help deliver. He's a judge to deliver God's people. How is it that he sinks like this? And how does that happen to us? And by the way, you can apply this to the church. Uh, former uh, president of Westminster Seminary, California, Bob Godfrey, says that both individual Christians and the church often have the same purpose. We want to be powerful in ourselves. We want to be powerful. We want to be strong. We want our policies. We want our impact on the culture. We want our president. We want to have a, our powerful voice. And there's nothing really, in a sense, wrong with that. But friends, our first calling is to be consecrated and separate and holy to the Lord. Samson's job one is our job one. Even to the, even to the church in Corinth, the lousy church in Corinth, Paul can write a letter to them and say, to the saints who've been made holy, who've been separated, who, who are consecrated to the Lord. Now, i got to tell you something here, <laughs> right? But, but they're saints. They're separate. They're supposed to be holy. And that's job one for us, too. We, we cannot want cultural power, in a sense, more than we want spiritual holiness. And if you want to talk afterwards about how that may play out, we can do that. But the, the point is, are we thinking about our primary call to be the Lord's? In the midst of all the th other things we want to see God do in the culture and the world, in the arts and politics and sports, whatever it is we want to do. Uh, beyond, do, we, do we think beyond I, my team winning? And do we start to think about how I'm supposed to live for the Lord? Me. Because we're Christians. We're the in Christ ones. And that has nothing to do with cultural power. We, you, a Christian can have no cultural power and still live a life for the Lord. And you can apply this to the home, too. Example, every decision a parent makes is fraught with anxiety. So many variables. If you choose this view of discipline over that one, or if you choose this educational choice over another, what is going to be the cost in dollars? What is going to be the risk of temptation, depravity, depending on which way I go, or what it is I allow, or what it is I do? How do you measure it? What is your ultimate purpose or goal? And so to keep things as simple as possible, what you want to do is remember that there is some sense that while they are in your home, your kids are consecrated to the Lord. While they're in your home, your kids are consecrated to the Lord. That your purpose in leading your home is to be separate from the world, even as you're in the world separate in terms of holiness, that your home is to be maintained as a, as a circle of blessing. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord, that that's a, a place of, of blessing and holiness, that in your home, Jesus is Lord. In a sense, that's your purpose statement. In our house, is, is Jesus Lord over this house or is he not? One of the big temptations in Christian community is that we really want our children to belong to the world and to the Lord. Big temptation in Christian culture. We want our children to belong to the world and to the Lord. We want it all. We want them to be a success in the world and with the Lord. Will my child be cool and fit in if he or she doesn't have 
a phone like everybody else? Will my child live a relevant life? And, and then it's about school. Then it's about co- accomplishments. And then it goes to social media hits and their, the, the number of friends and likes. And finally, it's about where they go to college. And then it's about what career they choose. Down, down, down we go into the places of the world, buying into the world's categories. What about walking with the Lord? What about the purpose of personal holiness? You know this. You know this. If we were to have to choose success with the world versus success with the Lord, it's not easy, is it? It is really not easy. Seriously. If you had to choose, parents, between your child being a Christian plumber or an unbelieving doctor, which would make you happier? And to our Princeton students, this is for you. Really, it's for your parents. If your parents had to choose between you being a Christian carpenter like Jesus or an unbelieving doctor, what would they choose? It's not easy, is it? A Christian walking with Jesus but living in your basement or one who saved enough to buy their own home but really doesn't want to talk to you about Jesus. Which would you rather have? This is hitting me pretty close to home. You know, you know the right answer, but it might not be the one that you're happy with. And what if everything actually in your life has gone wrong? Not just with your kids' choices, but your own choices. This is everybody. What if your life, following your choices, your desires, going down, 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 follow the world. What if your choices haven't gone well? You know what we're saying. You spend a life going down to your own Timna, and you feel like you can never be good enough, you're not redeemable, and that you will never change. Well, here is what you've got to remember. If you're going to highlight any verse in this passage, something breaks in at verse 4. A new perspective pops in that gives you hope Samson's father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, this is the age-old question, right, of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And I know it's really unsatisfactory because the Bible actually never tells you how those things connect. It just tells us that they are. You have some will, you have an experience, your life experiences that, you know, when you raise your arm, it goes up. And like you decided that, and no one yanked on it. At the same time, over here, God allowed that to happen. And it wouldn't happen if he didn't allow it. How do these things connect? Well, here we have this guy, Samson, who is definitely not following the Lord, as we'll see in a moment. And yet he's doing it with the power and the purpose of God who's using him, he's sending depraved, depravity bombs Samson right into the middle of the Philistines, so it goes boom. Samson doesn't know it. The Philistines don't know it. Only God knows. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Think about that. It means that that neither Samson's foolishness nor stubbornness is going to prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. And if that's true of Samson, that's true of you. Such that if you look at your past and you say, my past is a horror, 
I'm stained. Uh, I'm irredeemable. I have made so many choices that have gone against the Lord. I'm just, I'm just, I just can't be one of y'all people. Y'all look nice and I'm not. No. This is this is what the Lord does, right? He God can use our sinfulness. God can use our stupidity to bring about his goodwill, his goodwill for you, his love for you, his redemption of you. In fact, almost we're, we're gonna on Thanksgiving, we're gonna hear testimonies from people. Sometimes it's a testimony about how somebody came to faith, sometimes it's a testimony of just something that the Lord did in their lives this year, as if that's some small thing. And 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 when you hear somebody give a testimony of faith, so often is I was moving this way. I was going down, 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 down. And that's the very thing the Lord used to wake me up. Something happened in the going down, and somehow sweetness was pulled out of out of the snare of my own heart, my own depravity. That's what God does. He cannot be stopped. Which takes us to our second point, the weakness of God's servant. We've looked at God's power to work in any situation. Now look at the weakness of his servant because uh, uh, there's a connection for us here too. Notice the path. Notice the entryway of destruction for Samson. Samson tells his parents in verse 2 that he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as it were. Then in verse 3, after his parents try to rebuke him and correct him, he says to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, once again, Samson is a man of his times. He's, he's the quintessential Israelite we've been reading. That should, that should echo, there should be echoes here as we go through the book of Judges, because all Israel's doing what, what's right in their own eyes. And Samson's just doing, he's just this, this hulking slob of a guy who's just doing everything that every Israelite does. He does the evil he sees over and over again. Oh, there's a hot girl. Get her for me. Oh, there's some sweet honey. Gotta have it. He sees and he does. You could say that Samson is the quintessential American. We see and we do. We see and we do. He sees this woman who should not be a viable partner for him. She's, She's not only not a believer. In fact, she's an idolater. Actually, more than that, she's one of God's enemies. She's one of the enemies of God's people. She's a Philistine. She, Samson should be working to deliver his family from the Philistines, not uniting with them. Samson um, should be going down to Timnah for a war, not a wedding. And remember, Israel's job was to expel the Canaanites out of the promised land. The word Canaanite is simply an umbrella term for anyone who lived in the land of Canaan who was not among God's covenant people. This wasn't, by the way, hear me now, this wasn't, don't try to fit it into your modern categories, use scripture's categories here, this was not done on the basis of race. It was not done on the basis of culture. This is not God-sanctioned ethnic cleansing here. It's amazing really how disinterested the Bible actually is in race. Example, when Rahab... When Rahab, an ethnic Canaanite, exercised faith in Jehovah, she became a part of the people of God and stayed in Canaan. And she's in the so-called Hall of Faith, by the way, with Samson in Hebrews 11. Her race, her ethnicity, and color do not matter. What mattered is, who is your God? 
Are you worshiping the one true God? The purpose of the mission to push out the Canaanites is, in micro, God on mission. God is on mission here in Judges 14. He's the one who's acting. He's the one who's sovereignly over all of this. And he's on a mission to break down all of the idols of false worship because idolatry and false worship lead to slavery and death. Every time, idolatry leads to slavery and death. That's where they go. Now think, think about this. Samson must know who he is. You can't, get, you can't be raised as a Nazarite and not know who you are. Okay, you've got this funny hair. You're the only person in your, in your class that doesn't cut your hair. Okay? And uh, you have to eat funny food. If you think kosher is funny, Nazarite food is even funnier. And uh, you have these promises on your life. You're now dedicated to the Lord. You can't do some of the things. You can't grow up to have some of the jobs that other people have because you're a Nazarite. You're dedicated. You're consecrated. You're separated, you see, for the Lord. And yet his eyes turn him into this hulking package of lust, desires, and appetites that pushes out every thought he has of the one who gave him his strength, who gave him his calling, who, who, whose Holy Spirit came upon him. In other words, Samson is a 21st century man. End of discussion. She's not misright. She's misright now, and I got to have her. Now, let me, let, me, let me apply this first to marriage, both for when you will consider it, for those of you who are married and are trying to maintain it, and then there's wisdom too here if you're single, because Lord knows Samson lives functionally as a single man. doesn't matter if he's married or not. He acts like he's a single guy. Now, as a pastor, uh, I see this over and over again. People, young Christians, come to a pastor, and they, and they want a traditional wedding a wedding day that speaks of promises of deep love, a wedding day, that, a service that speaks of how special these two people are to one another. They want a wedding day that communicates on that day sacrificial giving to one another, uh, a kind of love that, that is sacrificial uh, for each other, and the joy on that day of putting somebody else first. But the core of the union in reality is often sensuality, lust, and desire. And uh, how do I know that? How can I so easily say that? Well, people will say they want a wedding that looks godly on the outside, but forgive me, is filled with Samsonite luggage. And, 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 uh, yeah, okay. <clears throat> people come to pastors. Here's how it goes. People come, come to pastors and they say, Pastor, will you do my wedding? It turns out they're already engaged. Why do you want to talk to me? You're already engaged. Why do you want me to do premarital counseling if you're already engaged? They've already, you find out, they've actually already set the date. Pastor, could you do premarital counseling? Um, turns out, meeting one, you find out they've already hired a photographer, they've got a cake baker. They're not even really asking. They're just wanting me to show up so the wedding looks like a wedding, you see. And so you start to ask questions. You ask, well, you know, are they a believer? And so often the answer is, well, they're close. Uh, or I'm not really sure yet. Could you talk to them? 
Now that is a sleepy way of saying, she is right in my eyes, Pastor, get her for me. It's the same thing. Uh, I'll ask, do they go to church? Well, I'm not sure. And then I ask, well, what are you guys doing on a Sunday? Well, we just work so hard. We've been saying that we'll find a church. All I can say to that, friends, is marrying the wrong person has consequences. Marrying the wrong person has consequences. The consequences of marrying somebody who does not love God or see the world as you do can hurt you, can hurt this person that you say you love, and has consequences that extend generationally. I've seen the same sleepy spiritual state in couples that are married 10 years. And when you're single, it's even easier to live a a Samson-like life because there's never anyone to tell you that not to do what's right in your own eyes. You know this. Friends, if you're not putting to death those things that, that, that seek to enslave you, those things will enslave you. If you're not seeking to put to death those things that enslave you, those things will enslave you. They just will. They do. So that you have to, when it comes to marriage, you have to think of marriage this way. Marriage is not just for your pleasure. Marriage requires, in a sense, the setting up of a promised land where you have to push out every other distraction, every other allure, all the other idols of your heart that you'd like to bring into the marriage. You have to be willing to push those things out of this new promised land that you're creating that is your family because your marriage, your marriage bed, your marriage household is to be separate, consecrated, and holy. Separate, consecrated, and holy to one another as one flesh because your home is to be separate, consecrated, and holy to the Lord. But then we can't just apply this to marriage. We have to apply it to our eyes because the eyes are connected to the heart. This is a story a lot like the test, as we said, in the garden. When, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some and she ate it. It's a connection right there. And it happens that fast. That fast. There is, a, uh, there is little that gets in the way of the I-heart connection. It's a straight line, and it's true for Samson, and it's true for us. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, like Samson's, often like yours and mine, your whole body will be full of darkness. So let's apply it this way. Beware, beware in a digital world that the world is getting more sophisticated at finding your eyes. The world is getting more sophisticated at finding your eyes and therefore your heart. And part of that is because sex digitally is so easy to come by. Pornography is especially ensnaring today uh, because the shame factor, of course, has been removed. You don't have to go to one of those skeevy bookstores anymore. You can do it. You can do it on your job, at your work, over your lunch, at your desk, or on your phone. And and people addicted to pornography are not so much addicted to the pictures or the images, though they are what first capture the eyes, as they are, believe it or not, addicted to self-centeredness. Just like Samson. It's all about you. It's all about feeding you. Such that when you do lay eyes on someone who is beautiful to the eyes, you're going to start to look at them through 
the way that you've been using sex and the eyes such that they will be all about you too. We've got to look at how convicted and committed we are to always serve ourselves and repent and repent. Seriously, when it comes to pornography, if you allow your children or even your spouse to have their their screens, their iPads, their phones in the bedroom, likely the battle is already lost. Think about that. As James says, Susan read it for us earlier, each one, no exceptions, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Yeah, there's the world. Yeah, there's the devil. But there's the flesh too. And you're dragged away by your own desires. And those desires drag us and entice us into bondage. We're enslaved to ourselves. And friends, slavery to yourself is the worst because there's no worse taskmaster than your own heart. Your own heart is always wanting and grabbing and taking. Your own heart, have you noticed, never shuts up. Finally, the secret of God's grace. As we're thinking about how we can all be ensnared just that quickly, um, if you think, uh, well, I don't have a, a problem with pornography, that's just not my problem. Uh, think about something like style. Style never goes away. The more you're a slave to style, the moment you're enslaved to style, the moment you're in style, did you notice it's the moment you're just about out of style? There's, we, I mean, we could keep going to idol to idol to idol, you see? It's all about being the object of our own desires. We've got to look at, well, how, how does God work into a heart that has just been doing this every day? And some of us are. We're, we're feeding the idols every day. How does God break in? In verse 5, while Samson and his folks are headed down to Timnah, a lion attacks him. Like we said, he should be going to war down there, but instead it's on this occasion that Samson's going to break every single Nazarite vow he's taken. First, he breaks the fifth commandment to honor his mother and father. They don't want him to go down there. He goes down there. Then think about this. Why is Samson in a vineyard when Nazarites are not to drink wine or anything produced from grapes? Samson should walk into the vineyard and go, ooh, I should not be here. But there he is in a vineyard of all places. And later, again, he will follow his eyes and eat the honey out of a dead carcass. Uh, it's not just a Nazarite. No, no Jew was supposed to put their hand in an unclean dead animal. But there Samson sees the honey, scoops it out. Not only does he defile himself, but then without telling his parents where it came from, he defiles them as well. Have some honey. It came out of a dead carcass, but have some. It's really good. See? This is the way that sin works. It just spreads. It just spreads. Now, I want you to listen. This is, if you remember anything from this series, this is it. This is Samson's power. This is Samson's power. Samson has enormous power. He is a superman of sin. That's who he is. That's what he is. And what a power it is. And dare I say, it's your power too. Everybody in this room is a superhero sinner because you have this enormous power to do this. 
little people, scrawny people, thin people, emaciated people, petite people, puny people. Every kind of human being has the power of Satan to sin and the power of Samson to sin. This is Samson's power. It's our power. We can sin and sin spreads. And it's so clear in the story, too. You know this. We, we picture so badly every, every, every flannel graph of Samson you've ever seen, I have to tell you, is garbage. Because we picture, right, we picture some combination of, like, James Bond and the Incredible Hulk. You know, he just seems to have this way with women, but he's this big, beefy guy, right? That's how we picture him at best. At worst, he's more like the Incredible Hulk and Harvey Weinstein. But power and depravity, that's how you picture him. But these chapters never describe Samson as having a power of his own. There are no descriptions here of Samson as big. No, descript, no descriptions here in the text of a muscle-bound guy. In fact, if you read through these chapters, you will see that there is this question that Delilah asked Samson, and he, if he were this big, ripped guy, she would never ask this. But she says, where does your power come from? Because he's probably this, like, regular guy. He's just a guy. But he's got all this power. Where does he where does your power come from? It's not obvious to her. He didn't look like he spent all day at Gold's Gym. No, when Samson tears the lion apart or does anything else, this, the passage tells us he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how the Spirit comes upon him just before he tears the lion apart? Now think, think about this. Samson is supposed to do to the Philistines what he does to the lion. He's supposed to tear the Philistines apart. And Israel is supposed to be sweet. Israel is supposed to have the sweet aroma and this honey-sweet flavor to a dead and dying world. And those things are not happening. And the reason is the Holy Spirit both allows Samson to break all of his Nazarite vows and gives him and gives us a picture of what God is planning to do with his power. The Holy Spirit is allowing this depravity to show us the power. God and what he's doing in each of your lives. And you keep seeing it. Next week, we'll start to see how God actually redeems his people by sending Israel's strongest and worst sinner into the middle of their worst enemy, the Philistines. Uh, and, uh, and, and don't miss it. God is essentially saying here in verse 4 that Israel, Israel, Israel is right in my eyes. That's what the story is about. Israel does whatever is right in their own eyes, but God is saying to Israel, I'm making you right in my eyes. It's my eyes. See the world as I do. And my heart. And I will have Israel for myself. No one else, certainly not the Philistines, can have my people. And when we get to the New Testament, we will meet a man who also becomes a bridegroom. A bridegroom like Samson. And this man will knowingly marry himself to a group of people that everyone says should have, he should have nothing to do with that as a Jewish man, he should have nothing to do with Gentiles, just as Samson married himself to the unclean, so that Gentiles, too, become the bride of Christ. In fact, as Christians, we have a Savior who becomes defiled just as Samson does. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. But the verse doesn't end there. It says that out of that defiled, torn-apart body of Jesus Christ, God would scoop out sweetness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus Christ is everything that Samson should have been. In Christ Jesus, Jesus breaks apart the devouring, attacking powers of sin and death and the appetites for lust, the appetites and the desires of your own heart, all the wantings and needings, all the things that you and I have worshipped last week and this week and next week, and he rips them apart. And as a result, a sweet smell rises up from the carcass of our old defiled hearts. The old man starts to be put to death, and he, he, he pulls out of that a new man because of what he has done. In Christ, the motivations of our new hearts slowly come alive. We are reborn. We are conformed to his likeness. We are now set apart, consecrated, and made holy to the Lord. I don't care if you don't feel that way today. Because it's what he says about you as his people that matters. He's making you to be that in Jesus Christ. That's how Samson makes it into the Hall of Fame. Not because he's a good guy. He never really will be. Spoiler alert. But by faith in Jesus Christ, he is. Let's pray.